from KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Now in our 19th year on the air, and we're still the only program on radio today that's dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. So let me welcome you to the crossroads of history. Our topic today is one that pops up every now and then when our society momentarily must focus on it, even if nothing changes. Reparations. My guests are Phyllis Brown. A check will not atone for the legacy of chattel slavery. Dr. Eric Wiebelhaus Brom. I'm white. I grew up in an area that was, uh, was almost exclusively white. I mean, it's just not a conversation. Uh, it's just not a, a point of discussion at all. And Raphael Davis. And so one of the things we have to do is make sure that we're also sending out this message that racism is unacceptable. And then once that is, is disseminating, moving toward reparations becomes a lot more feasible. We'll begin our discussion right after the news, so stay with us. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Our discussion today is on reparations. Those of us past 70 years of age can remember the topic of reparations bubbling up only very occasionally in our youth. It was so far from public policymakers because when it did arise, there was little support for extended study of legal and historic action. It simmered well below popular concerns. And once again, in our current political climate, we hear new arguments for and against the social and moral calls for actions. What will our current generations do? And have we changed our understanding of the issue? My guests today are Phyllis Brown in the older generation. She describes herself as a child of the 60s, one who was born into a family of social activism when segregation was a way of life. At the age of 15, Phyllis walked into the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee office, SNCC, and volunteered after school to answer the phone. A lifelong activism grew from her, this experience. She says, activists are people who see the need for change and devote their time to doing something about it. They are driven by passion and a vision for a better future. So, Phyllis Brown, thanks for being here and welcome to the program. Dr. Eric Wiebelhaus Brahm is our middle generation guest. He's an associate professor in political science in the School of Public Affairs and the Middle Eastern Studies coordinator at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. And his research examines how societies confront histories of violence and repression. Dr. Brahm, glad to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. And then our younger generation voice is uh, Raphael Davis, a philosophy and international studies major at UAA Little Rock and has been been conducting research on how measures to address histories of violence affect conflict-affected societies after spending the summer at a prestigious research and graduate preparatory program. Raphael, glad to have you here, too. Honored to be here. I do want to begin with the first question, really, for the people who are listening to the program. How do our generations define reparations? Before we get into the nitty-gritty of it, Phyllis Brown, what does reparations mean to an older generation person? Well, your, your question read, while there is a definition of reparations, how does that definition differ from older, middle, and younger perspectives? Right. Well, I'm not certain that there are differing definitions among older, middle, and older people. The differing of opinions comes from white people, young, middle, and older white people. I mean, Mitch McConnell said, we tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing landmark civil rights legislation, and by electing an African-American president. We did the work. 
to get an African-American president. So his opinion really doesn't count. Uh, and then I read an article written by a young white woman, and the discourse between the two of them was, one exclaimed, slavery was 150 years ago. Get over it, All right? But yet your Jewish families receive reparations. So the differing of opinions comes particularly from white people. Uh, Dr. Brom, your thoughts on where the definition is? In many ways, Phyllis articulated a lot of different views on that. And I'll say, you know, as someone who, who grew up, I mean, I'm, I'm white, I grew up in an area that was not, uh, was almost exclusively white. The converse, I mean, it's just not a conversation. It's just not a, a point of discussion at all. And, and to, you know, my, my own research, I can't present you with lots of data about how different age cohorts view, view, these, uh, view these issues here in the U.S. or how things break down on racial or, or, or demographic lines. But, uh, you know, if we look at, at countries around the world who have dealt with these things, you know, generally, uh, I think the, the sentiment that, that Phyllis was articulating, I think was a good one in that, th- that the, generally the best practice is that you're wanting to articulate reparations. You certainly want to have the, the input and that the driving force in terms of how those, those reparations are, are articulated and formed should be based on those who have suffered. And uh, that has not, has not been the case. I mean, uh, here in the United States, it, it's actually not the case in many other countries as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Raphael, same t- uh, question for you. How do, how do you see reparations as defined by maybe younger people? So um, I, I have to echo Phyllis's sentiment that, you know, I, I have not seen much difference between different generations, uh, and specifically because I was not able to find data as I was looking for it um, and, and able to, you know, test it or anything like that uh, before this discussion I decided to call around and ask family members and friends and friends of friends and friends of cousins and and see between the different generations what are they going to tell me what are they, what are they going to be their first references um, how are they going to respond so I called my grandfather uh, and I said and he's uh, seventy nine getting ready to turn eighty and I said Grandpa what do you think about reparations he's like well what do you think about it and I was like. <laughs> Okay, uh, I mean, um, how would you feel if reparations were given? He said, I'm still looking for the 40 acres and a mule, which every, everyone that I talked to, whether it was my grandfather or my mother or a sister or a cousin, whomever, that was one of the first things that they referred to was 40 acres and a mule that happened right after, if I'm not mistaken, the Civil War. Civil War, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's uh, one, of the, one, of, one of the first things that people refer to. And then they, and then they go on to talk about. So they talk about reparations in terms of slavery, and then uh, the forty acres and a mule, and then the redlining, and then and some even refer to police brutality, and then um, all these other different practices. Of, you know, Jim, the many years of Jim Crow, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, separate but equal. Right, went on for sixty plus years. And so when they talk about reparations, like they refer to all these different things, and it doesn't seem to change between um, who's who's talking about it um, generationally. Yeah, I'm seventy, 
And when I was preparing uh, for, to do this program, I looked back over my lifetime, and my first recollection of anything of the word reparations came when I was probably either right at graduation from high school, would have been in 67 or 66, somewhere in there. There was a bubble up of reparations talk then, simmered all down after that. And then again, a few years later, it would pop up, and probably maybe 10 years later, it popped up again. Something happened societally where it came up again. And I've, I've noticed all throughout my life that reparations is a topic that comes up and goes down, comes up and goes down. And uh, we'll get into some of the uh, things that, have, that were tried, uh, but nothing seems to have happened at all in all of my life. And then going, going back uh, uh, basically to the Civil War, Phyllis, you might re re recall here when, he, when uh, uh, Raphael mentioned the 40 acres and the mule. You know, I think in many ways that's the thing that white politicians will often sort of point forward, well, this is impractical, right, to, to do this, uh, to do this now. Uh, that, that well, even if I understand from what I've read, the forty acres and the mule really didn't get didn't get done either. Right, it was like anything they tried right from the start. I did do a little bit of research, and I'll just throw this in at this point in time, because it has come up many, many times. Back in 1783, a lady by the name of Belinda Royal, a, a black lady at that time, uh, she was a slave. And she sued through the uh, Massachusetts General Assembly and w received reparations. And she received it in pounds and, sh and shillings, which I converted. She received, this is in 1783, $1,062.50 for her portion of whatever it was. So then I put that into another thing I found on Google where you can do the inflation and the, all the different things to find current time amount. That same $1,062, I rounded it up to $1,063, is now $63,492. The same Still thing. Still not enough. But ironically, one of the other things I found was in 1969, the Black Manifesto from the National Black Economic Development Conference uh, came up with their recommendation to uh, have the churches and synagogues pay $500 million in reparations to blacks, but that amounted to only $15 for about 20 to 30 million African Americans at that time in 1969. So from uh, her $1,000 to $63,000 to $15, reparations is weird when it comes to uh, how they've calculated or even tried to calculate Phyllis, let me come back to you uh, as far as uh, uh, how has the passage of time weakened or strengthened uh, reparations in, in, in your experience? So it was um, 1989 when Democratic Representative John Conyers mm -hmm. from Michigan um, introduced a bill, H.R. 40, right. to begin to make rest recommendations about reparations. Right? It wasn't until Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas brought it back up recently. And for the first time in over a century and a half, the, the notion of restorative justice for the legacy of institutional racism, slavery, 
was presented on Juneteenth um, at the nation's capital. All right. So, and then there is a presidential candidate, um, Marianne Williamson, who said that uh, the payment of a debt that is owed amounts to the trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars. And so is it because this country doesn't want to pay the money, but yet you give Israel so many billions of dollars every year, and, and yet they continue to keep a war going against the Palestinians and you know you spend this country spends so much money <clears throat> in military funding but you don't want to pay reparations so fortunately it's having a resurgence and and hopefully we can main, remain steadfast in this pursuit we're talking about reparations today on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow with my guest Phyllis Brown, a lifelong activist going back to the 60s, Dr. Eric Brom, associate professor here at UALR whose research examines how societies confront histories of violence and repression, and Raphael Davis, a philosophy and international studies double major here at UALR. We'll be right back after this short break. We're back with my guests, Phyllis Brown, Dr. Eric Brom, and Raphael Davis, discussing reparations. Uh, Raphael, let me come to you with uh, what you've been studying, researching in terms of reparations and how you fit into this discussion from a younger person. Sure, sure. So um, one, I think, growing up um, as, a, as a black American in the United States, that's, that's been one thing. And having grown up around the conversation so much and it being something that just hasn't you know, a month doesn't go by without it getting discussed on one hand. But then also on the academic side, I've been fortunate to work with uh, Dr. Brahm, who um, helped me become more interested in, in what we call transitional justice, which is uh, when uh, governments basically take measures to deal with, with histories of, of violence and, and human rights abuse. And reparations is one of those, uh, falls under that category of mechanisms. I've been researching how uh, transitional justice mechanisms um, and, and then I, I categorize those as, you know, whether they have like a symbolic function or whether you can touch it like money, it's, in, it's material, it's in your hand. How, how those things affect uh, conflict resumption, you know, how, how likely is peace to last after you implement a measure like reparations? Mm -hmm. Well, I really want to respond to Eric's statement okay. right, in terms of how this is going to be paid and and people's definitions, the, the varied definitions of justice. A, a check will not atone for the legacy of chattel slavery. In a few days, it will be the 56th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, where he stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and, and said, in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to receive a check, right? And that check has been returned insufficient funds. And so it, it's more than just money. It is elimination of redlining. It is fair wages. It's housing. It's 
the elimination of police brutality. It's all of those forms of injustices. It's more than just a check. It's more than just money. It's it's about equality. So you've had this in in your entire life to deal with this, not just reparations, but the entire uh, civil rights issues and things like that. Where does reparations fit into your frame of reference as far as being important to your generation? So let me give you an ideal example, and that is... I have a degree in radio and television, and I thought that I was going to come out into the world and be the first, whatever, Oprah. But all of my desires and my aspirations were denied because I'm not a size four, right? And I'm I'm not a white girl with blonde hair. Can you fix that? No, not now you can't. You can't fix it because I am of that generation that, you know, I don't fit in anymore. I fit into my own world, but but I was denied that. Am I angry about it? Of course I am. I'm highly disturbed about it because I have a talent that the world needs to appreciate, but I was denied that. So it's more than just a check. Mm-hmm. It being denied the, the homeowner's loan, all, right, all of those things. I sat on the back of the bus. I've seen the signs that said, white ladies, colored women. And because of that, I don't want you to call me a lady. I'm a woman. Raphael, you know, you have, your generation hasn't really experienced or felt inside of you the same sorts of things that uh, Phyllis has. But what does your generation see? So I actually question whether or not we have a lot of, and of course we have not lived through it in the exact same way and pay complete respects to that. But a lot of the the trauma of a, of a legacy of discrimination against a group of people leaves psychological trauma that can go down the generations. And so even though... I wasn't there in that same regard. It's it's very one. It's very painful to hear, but then two, it's it's. I also have to live with those fears, and often, even going through school, like I'm, I don't know whether or not I should say this, but I'm partially driven to do three times more than everybody else because I'm afraid that because of the color of my skin, I may not like if if somebody finds out that I'm black, well then maybe I may not have the same chances, and so it's having to live with that, and it's having to live with the fear of. Uh, not being able to ride a bike at night because a police officer is going to could could uh, could be a first of all a racist police officer because I know many good police officers but that one that's racist will will start riding behind me and then uh, claim that I was carrying drugs and then shoot me right and then I'm I'm gone no more going home to mom no more going home to my niece or my sisters or my brother like it's it's over and so I mean I, I didn't live in that time but I certainly live in this one and I have to say that I certainly I certainly walk around with a lot of fear from day to day that it is like that spans generations and takes a while to get to get out of it. Um, one to resolve, two to get out of the system of, of a family. There's a lot of people that talk about things called generational cycles, right? And so things that happen or experienced in one generation get passed down to the next one, get passed down to the next one. And this is one that, unfortunately, is not in the hands of the families that are having the cycle happen. Um, and so I don't. So I actually question whether or not 
the experiences are all that different because the tears still come in. I, many people in my generation are still infuriated and still, and then the things we have to, to live through, yes, it, it may have been much, much worse, but it's still traumatic. Did you hear how many times he used the word fear? Mm -hmm. Fear. So that trauma, he's fearful of it. So the fears of generations prior to me lived in the fear of being lynched. His fear is being a man walking down the street, a black man. Mm -hmm. Did you hear him use the word drugs in his car? Why does he have to have drugs? The fear is still there. So now he's shot in the back. Now he's shot in the head. Now he's shot, all right? And so now we have another black man living in fear and of his life. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Brom, you and I both are white, and we're I'm older, you're middle-aged. Those in our likeness don't have in our hearts or our feelings the things that either Phyllis or Raphael have talked about. So where in the world does reparations get into the, in our frame of reference, where do we do something about it as, as a participant in the need for this? That's a really great question. I mean, I think many ways, I think it's just a, a failure of understanding, a failure of compassion, of, uh, of, uh, experience of, of others. You know, I, I'm reminded of you know, my experience growing up. I grew up around Milwaukee in a suburb, um, which in Milwaukee is one of the most, if not the most segregated cities in the country. So for me, my experience was very different or was maybe perhaps different from uh, from the, you know, not growing up in the South where, you know, there was really very little in, interaction and, and you know, there are sections of the the city where people did not go. The the evening news every evening that my parents would watch would be, you know, the litany of it would be crimes being committed in uh, in the black ghettos in the in, in the city. And so, kind of thinking about the dimension of fear, right? There's always this fear that's being built built up, uh, particularly in those suburb among those suburban whites uh, as well. But I think that's kind of pulling us away from from real conversation here. For many whites, there's this sense that the Civil Rights Act have been passed, right? And we have this ethos in the United States about how you know everyone can make the most of themselves. They just have to work hard and they and, and they can succeed. And we tell our children this, and 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 this kind of speaks to what Raphael was saying that you know he's. Still, probably you know, driven by that, and that's why he's you know he's working three times as hard to, to try to do that because he thinks that that's possible, but yet knows that the color of his skin is is uh, potentially going to hold him back. Um, well, where does so, reparations fit into that aspect of what could we do from the? I guess you'd say the psychology of. Well, of yeah, there's I think among many whites, there's just a failure to understand the those legacies are still with us and and you know the 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 fears that you have in terms of just walking out walking out the door i mean that's a really that's a really difficult question so mm -hmm. how do you know how do we generate that that empathy and i that? guess that's where we've been stuck all my life anyway and probably all of phyllis's life too we've been think, stuck there on that so. one right so you say how do we generate that empathy 
well, you pay the Japanese $20,000 per person for a Japanese internment in America. You pay the Holocaust victims $12 million or more. I hope my figures are right. But none of those people have been enslaved on American soil. There were injustices inflicted upon these people, but Holocaust victims came from another country, right? So why does the United States feel obligated to to pay Holocaust victims, right? Yes, you put the Japanese in internment camps here in Arkansas, but yet you found the money in your coffers to pay the money. They were never enslaved in this country. And yet this country's wealth, your Ivy League colleges, Harvard has an endowment of so many millions of dollars. But that came from the sale of sugar and tobacco and cotton, right? This was slave labor, right? And all of these companies... This country was built on free labor. Alexandria uh, Cortez yeah. has even come up and said, yes, we need to have reparations for black Americans. However, we need to include women and Mexicans and LGBT. Only black people were brought to, these, to the shores of America and enslaved. Hey, you raised some good other examples but I, but I don't think that just because there were, there were reparations for Japanese Americans, I don't think that that was a result of empathy on the part of white Americans. I think that I think there was was politics involved in that. So um, was the country admitting that they did a wrong? There's yeah, never yeah, been yeah. an yeah. apology by a United States president for right. slavery. You know, it seems to me from what I've uh, read about it that uh, when uh, Representative John Conyers in 1988 and, and 1989, when his bill was introduced, that's where everything seemed to have stopped in the modern era. Is there anything going on now in in our legal legalese that is even close to uh, addressing reparations so that it doesn't just fade into the distance? Rafael? There is, there is one. Uh, that I'm aware of that's been big and it's and it's not in the terms of and, and as we've said many times before like no check is going to do it not that a check shouldn't be a part of something right but um, I think the getting of information because many black families have this anxiety that well I, I can't know my ancestors right I'll never know what happened to this answer that sister I can go back so far on the tree and then something's missing right and so there has been a memorial that has come up with and it's extremely and honestly, it's very depressing to look at, but it has the names of uh, many, many, many black people and slaves, uh, whether they were slave or free, um, and I use scare quotes with that, that were lynched. Um, and, and so I think that getting of information is part of that, and I, I really value that um, because it, it allows even my family to look back on the family tree and say, okay, what more can we find out? Because many people can trace their families back for hundreds of years, right? And and it's often an obstacle for uh, black people. For example, my family can trace back its part of the family that came from Holland, right? Uh, that that were white, right? They were Dutch. But we we have very, like we can only trace back a few generations of, of, 
um, people that were, were black. And so if somebody happens to know the names of, of some of those family members, then maybe we can find some information. And I think that's part of what's going on mm -hmm. today. Phyllis? It's called the Equal Justice Institute yes. Yes. in Montgomery, Alabama. Okay, I thought it was in Alabama, but created I Created sure. by Brian Stevenson. Oh, do I revere that man. Right. And so when you go to the museum, yes, all 50 states. So first of all, we need to get rid of the myth that it was only in the southern states where we had slaves and where it was so oppressive. It was all over this country. And there's a marvelous book titled Complicity that talks about how the North was complicit in slavery. But it's the Equal Justice Institute in Montgomery, okay. Alabama. Yeah, I thought it was in Alabama, but about. I wasn't 100 percent. This is this is actually important to, to talk a little bit more about because there's actually a heck of a lot going on. You know, when it comes to where these symbolic things are coming up with information, there's um, some a lot of it happening right now, but even some more historically, uh, varies in terms of how focused it is. So, you know, a decade and a half ago, roughly, we had the T the Tulsa Race Riots Commission mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. looking there. Um, there's been a lot of efforts to commemorate the Elaine uh, massacre. You know, with the hundredth mm -hmm. anniversary of that this year. Um, the state of uh, Maryland created a lynching truth and reconciliation commission earlier this year, and that's getting started. Uh, there was an effort here in Arkansas to create something kind of like that, to create a, 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 an official body that would investigate the history of race, uh, race relations and racial violence here in the state that was unfortunately not successful in, in getting through the legislature this spring. And uh, there have been uh, other efforts in, I think there have, there's some statewide efforts happening in, and I'm, I'm not sure how far along, again, like I said, the U.S. is not where I typically research, but there have been some efforts at various points in uh, along the way in Florida, o Oklahoma, so at the, at the state level and at the official level, even setting aside uh, civil rights organizations, uh, academic institutions trying to do this thing. There have actually been some official governments, you know, at the, the, the local and state level there, too. And then kind of coming back more directly to reparations in a monetary sense, there's also been over the past few years, uh, a lot of uh, universities who have been really recognizing you know, the profit that, or the way in which they profited from slavery in different ways and are, are kind of com coming to terms with that. I, I'm not too up to speed on the different ways in which they've tried to, uh, tried to do that and, and, and the extent to which people think that it's satisfactory as far as how they're, how they're dealing with it. But there actually has been a heck of a lot, but it's, um, but it's either for private universities or things that are happening at the local or the state level, and they don't get as much attention. Right? So there's no one leading the band right now? Perhaps not in the city of Little Rock yeah. or in the state of Arkansas, but I would strongly recommend that you Google an organization called the Movement for Black Lives. They have a powerful platform, right? One of their topics is we demand an end to end the war against black people. Mm -hmm. right. We're talking about environmental. Have you seen in this city all these towers that are going up in neighborhoods that are supposed to give us faster internet service, 5Gs? They're in your front yard. That's environmental injustice. Raphael? I also wanted to point out, Dr. Brown brought up um, you know, many universities that are now thinking about the ways that they've benefited from injustice. I know 
not not in all the details that he's brought up, but I do know in terms of there have been many law schools that have also begun to focus on this. So uh, one that we have, Bowen, for example, mm-hmm. uh, starts to is is really focusing um, and and pushing this access to justice uh, initiative that they have going on through their different centers. Uh, and, and many law schools all across the country are coming up with things like uh, the Inst- institutes on race or uh, the Center for Human Rights or the Civil Center for Civil Rights or the uh, Center for African-American Rights. Those different kinds of things are, I've noticed, at least in in law schools, have really popped up and then they're there and they give people the opportunity to help um, black Americans access justice. We have one more break to take here this afternoon. We'll be right back. We're back with my guests, Phyllis Brown, Dr. Eric Brom, and Raphael Davis discussing reparations. Uh, just before we took the break there, uh, Raphael, you were talking about uh, universities and things, and, and Eric, you mentioned also something similar to that. But it sounds to me when I mentioned that there's nobody leading the band, how is any of this stuff about reparations getting funneled into actions? And I say that because there is an analogy, I think, that it just stuck out to me like like crazy when I thought about this. There's a, a current analogy to what I mentioned at the very beginning of the program where uh, reparations comes up, goes down, goes up, goes down, goes up. It's done that all my life long. It's done that all Phyllis's life long. Gun control. Every time there's something that happens, like this has happened in the last few weeks and around the country, everybody's up in arms about gun control, and then it fades. And then something else happens. And we talk about we're going to do something within Congress or we're going to do make changes for guns. Nothing happens. And then something happens, and everybody's up again. And it goes, it's been up and down, up and down like that, almost to the same extent as dis- the discussions about reparations, where nothing has actually happened. So my question is, I know there's disputes about what we should do, money, we should do this, that, the other. What, is, what are some real things that could actually work to fill the bill for reparations that would be satisfactory to everybody? I know that's a big question to to pull pull there, but is there something that would ameliorate this issue for whites and blacks? Uh, Raphael, any thoughts on that? One of the first things that comes to mind is access to mental health services. I, I, I know one of the first problems is that the the discussion around mental health is stigmatized highly. Many studies have shown that at least the few, the several that I've read have been that that's that much more so among uh, black men. I think one of the things that that might prove as satisfactory would be something like implementing so those that uh, especially that have state insurance, right, including mental health services, being able to go and see a therapist or a psychologist included in that insurance package, right? So I think that might be a very practical thing that, I, and frankly, that many are beginning to talk about now as we try to destigmatize this conversation around mental health. Eric, any thoughts on that? One of the things that I think puzzles me a little bit, so there hasn't been more movement on even like an apology, as Phyllis had mentioned earlier, which in, in some in some ways are costless, right? And I think one one of the things that's or one of the excuses that's often thrown up about why not reparations for slavery compared to Japanese Americans, for example, is that the bill would be, would be is much smaller, right? Because there are far fewer people. I mean, that's a red herring, but that's often thrown up. But even things that are more meaningful, right? But but uh, but don't have the price tag problem, so to speak, uh, aren't aren't done. Well, I mean, I'm a political scientist, right? So I'm always coming back to to the politics of these things. And I think 
where we might see movement is where is at some point where there's where there's an incentive for politicians to to, to address this issue. You know, I think for for the moment, the Republican Party has essentially written off Black Americans as as potential voters, right? So it's certainly getting more traction because of the political context. And so, you know, you're talking, you've mentioned a couple of times about you know, over time, we sort of see these things ebb and, ebb and flow. They come up when when politicians, when when activists are see that, that maybe the time is right, ripe to, to have some, make some progress now. The way politics and race are sort of wrapped up in, in, in America right now, I'm not optimistic in the, in the near future, but regardless of, of what, what our president thinks, I mean, our, our country's going to continue to become more diverse and that's the fear. Uh, yeah, okay. um, among him and his supporters. Yeah, but I think it, it, it's inevitable. That's inevitable. And so at 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 some point, maybe we'll get there. I I, I don't know. Well, uh, Phyllis, if if you could, we, we we talked about it. The check won't do it. Okay, let's let's say the check won't do it. Are there there's some other areas that you think would make the issue a little bit more like we're making progress? First of all, I I must congratulate those young people in Hong Kong. 12 weeks of protest, right? 12 weeks that could ultimately create a change in the governmental policy. So, so maybe we need to adopt some of the policies of those young people in Hong Kong and hit the streets and create a revolution. At what point in people's lives are we going to have some value for one another? Why do you have to deny me? Why do you have to tell me no? Why is it that I can't have the two-car garage? When are we going to recognize that the more you continue to deny people, the more you're going to have this unrest? Why do you want a border wall in Mexico, well, on the Texas border, but you don't want one from Canada? But you say, come people from Norway and Sweden and so forth. But, but you want to deny the people from South America and Mexico, mm-hmm. but you don't want to deny the people from Canada? So, yeah, perhaps we need to take some lessons from those young people in Hong Kong. Twelve weeks of unrest. They, shot the, they shut the airport down. Maybe we need to adopt some of their tactics mm-hmm. I mean, things rarely happen without without political pressure is that uh, Raphael, let me ask you about something that is beneath the surface of this entire discussion about reparations but is something your generation is obviously going to have to deal with and we're seeing it played out politically right now and that is where does racism fit into reparations is racism still the thing that's going to keep uh, reparations from ever coming beyond just an up and down type of thing i don't think it's necessarily so ingrained that we won't get any anywhere because i think i think racism is still a very strong barrier and i think one of the things that's problematic about it is it's often i mean it's definitely becoming more more noticeable than maybe it has been in the last 10 20 years because for a moment it seemed like it was swept under the rug slightly with the current political climate it's become that much more acceptable to also say things that are racist and be racist and be a bigot and and be all these other different horrible things so i think and kill people yes 
And so I, I think there's, I think there's definitely the potential for progress, but what I would warn about is going to be those same people that Dr. King warned about, the moderates, that are like, oh, we care about this issue, but wait, right? Or, but not now, or, but there's another way. I think that's going to be the moderates on any level, and Dr. King specified white moderates, but I'm saying moderates as regardless of what race of people you, you come from in the United States, if you're, if you're moderate, even if you're a black moderate, that's going to be a hindrance to progress because I mean, progress really, really happens with a lot of moderation, right? Somebody has to become radical almost in order for any change to happen. And that's certainly, I mean, certainly what Dr. King was doing. He in his day was seen as, now we look at him as like, he, that was right, that was right. And, but at, at that time, I'm sure he was seen as very, very radical because racism was the standard. And, and so one of the things we have to do, uh, aside from not being too moderate, is make sure that we're also sending out this message that racism is unacceptable, right? Um, and, and not treating people fairly is unacceptable. And then once that is, is, is disseminating, right, then I, I think that moving toward reparations becomes a lot more feasible. Eric, uh, you mentioned something a few minutes ago about it being uh, that you didn't have a lot of confidence in the future about where we might be going with this. And can you share what your your experience with your the, your studies in violence and that's that the confrontation things? Where do we see racism and violence as as it pertains to coming out of this? So, in the, I mean, in the short short term, I'm not. Short-term pessimistic, long, longer-term more optimistic, I guess. But I think if you look at if you look at other countries, if you look at progress here in the United States, what what typically happens is that there's been through whatever means some ability to mobilize a certain chunk of the population. You know, as Raphael was saying, sort of get those moderates off of their butts and um and that, that may not be in it may or may not be in the streets as phyllis was saying before but but at least sort of thinking about these issues as being important and sort of shaping their the, the way they uh, their political behavior whether it's voting or uh or or in other ways be great if there was some kind of magic formula about how do you get those uh, th- those those moderates to uh really see it in their interest to, to, to bring about more more significant change. I, I haven't seen that research as far as what what would be the, the, the trick that would do that. In uh, discussions like this, it seems like there's, there's a giant thing that we don't want to talk about, but you mentioned about the word check. But where does money fit into this whole idea of reparations? Is, is, is money something that we should not even talk about with reparations? Or is money actually something that is keeping reparations from being discussed? Or is it something that we can use to bring, in, bring about an answer? Which one do you think it is? Or is money holding it back or helping it along? Money is holding it back, right? Because when you look at the ex- estimate amount, it comes to something like $8 trillion, all right? And and this country is not going to give up $8 trillion. They will for weapons of war, you know, because for some strange reason, we love war. But in terms of getting rid of that wealth gap, it's going to take, hopefully the millennials may do it, maybe, all right? Maybe it's going to take 
boycotts because boycotts do work? Is it going to take, you know, that Hong Kong kind of mm-hmm. attitude of revolution in the streets? But now America has all of these weapons of war, all right? And they kill people for protest. They send them to prison, mm-hmm. all right? They put them in a cell, you know. Well, Raphael, does your generation and the one to follow you that's really— well, We haven't created yet. Yeah, <laughs> the next generation's coming up. Do you guys have the uh, the guts, or do you have do you see people that would actually stand up as the younger people did when I was young or when uh, Phyllis was young? You know, I've actually been asking myself that question sitting here the entire time. I don't know. And I think, I don't know if it's the ways and the areas in which I was raised that where a lot of things until I got a little bit older were I was shielded from. And so then that also meant that I was not connected with people that might then be more willing, right? Because it, for a moment, for a slight moment, I didn't recognize racism was still an issue because of the way my grandparents and my parents had protected me from that. And I'm so grateful, right, to, for them, to them for understanding that and how traumatic it can be and shielding me from that reality at that age. But I think also because of, because of that, I'm also unsure of who all is, you know, like who even in my own network is is willing enough to go to the street and protest. I certainly am, right? And I'm certainly willing to go find those others that will. But I'm wondering, I've really been wondering this entire time, like, who is it? Who else is there? And so I want to add that the same federal government who enslaved us kept us in chains enacted laws to legalize slavery, the killing, the lynching, the imprisonment of black people, uh, are they now going to pay us for their wrongdoings? Eric said earlier, why? You know, perhaps a quote. I hope it was a quote, Eric. Well, I didn't have slaves, so why should I have to pay? I think that's a common argument for for yeah. other people, white and black, or or whatever nationality. You know, they didn't grow up with that. It wasn't they didn't do it. I don't know how valid that is, and into it asked, doesn't. I think that's kind of like avoiding the the real question. I think part of and coming from a philosophical perspective, uh, we call this moral individualism, right? That you know the idea that. You cannot hold those same those people accountable, right? This, this is the theory um, that you know. Well, the the people that have done that are gone, and and so I think and and there's a little bit more to the theory also that uh, that when when you continue reading, it does two things. One of them is really good. On on one hand, it allows you to make friends with the people of the other race, right? That you recognize. Okay, well, like my friend Jade Keith, like Jade didn't do anything to me. Her mother didn't do anything to me, right? So it does wonders on that end. But at the same time, on the same token, it can it can allow people to ignore the fact that they benefit from a system of oppression, mm-hmm. right? And continue to either actually be ignorant of it or uh, play ignorant to it. Um, well, it would be kind of nice if we could figure out a way to jump forward two or three generations and prepare reparations for them in steps to take along the way to get there so that by the time you're an old man, we will have done something to 
help those new generations who have had to deal with reparations issues. But one of the things that we haven't talked about in terms of, I think, by the perception, among the perception of, of many whites in the United States about why something more isn't necessary is I think that many would probably point to affirmative action policies and say, well, this was a form of reparations. And so we've, we've been there. We've done that. There's pl- plenty of evidence to suggest that it's not not sufficient, but you know we're well, we're seeing you know we've been seeing that you know those policies being pulled back you know in in, in the last mm-hmm. few decades as well. Where um, and and what's driving it is is precisely this this sentiment among whites that okay right we you know we've 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 done this we've we've dealt with we've dealt with the issue, and now um, among some whites there's more of this this fear that well now we're being discriminated against right because we don't have these same kind of advantages. Again, just to be clear, that's not my thought. Well, you know, I, you kind of mentioned about the blending, or we talked about the, the blending of our entire society. Eventually, in several generations from now, I think we might see results then that might be more satisfying to everybody. In American politics, we talk about there being realignment of political parties uh, that occasionally happens when there's a, a reformulation of the, of the core groups within uh, the, the core constituents of a particular political party. And, you know, for now, um, you know, the Republicans have decided that we're, um, well, I don't think as a party they have, but our president has decided that full by, by trying to appeal to disaffected whites. But the, the, this notion of the demographic change, that, that's not going to be a successful electoral strategy for, for that long. And so the, the party is going to have to rethink it, it, its positions and start to try to appeal to, to people of color. If it wants to, if it wants to survive in the long run, mm-hmm. and so that's why, you know, what I was saying before that in the long run, I, I am more optimistic about, maybe not in terms of getting to, the full extent of reparations, but um, certainly getting to a better place than where we are now. And so, do keep in mind that the Supreme Court betrayed us in 2013, and so that all of that work that was done for voting rights has now been rescinded. Many of the progresses that were made are now being rescinded. Our discussion today has been on reparations, and I hope you have both enjoyed the program as well as learned, as I have, much, much more about this seemingly never-resolved issue. My guests have been Phyllis Brown. She describes herself as a child of the 60s, one who was born into a family of social activism when segregation was a way of life. At the age of 15, Phyllis walked into the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee office in Little Rock and volunteered there. She spent her life as an activist. Phyllis, I'm glad you were with us here today. Glad you were here. Thank you. And then uh, Dr. Eric wibblehaus Brom. He's an associate professor in political science in the School of Public Affairs and the Middle Eastern Studies Coordinator at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock. His research examines how societies confront histories of violence and repression. Dr. Brom, glad you were here, too. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And then on that younger generation has been Raphael Davis. He's a philosophy and international studies major at University of Arkansas and has been conducting research on how measures to address histories of violence affect conflict-affected societies. Uh, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is produced for KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas Little Rock. You can find us online at KUAR.org under Programs and send your comments to YTT at KUAR.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.